finance is not just about the numbers. It's also about the narrative. Um, and that's something I tell my team a lot here at Kickstart is that, you know, what we do as inv- investors is not just about the numbers, but it's also about the narrative. What is the story that we're telling about this company? What is the story that we're telling about how this market is going to develop? Because the numbers without context um, don't really mean anything. And so that's kind of how I found my way also into embracing the business and finance side more. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Joan Yao. Joan is the Vice President of Investments at Kickstart Ventures, the corporate venture capital arm of the Philippines Globe Telecom. Before Kickstart, she was investment manager for Southeast Asia at LGT Venture Philanthropy, a global impact investing firm headquartered in Europe. Hi, Joan. So nice to finally speak with you today. I feel like after all this time, I should have spoken to you earlier, but I'm happy to have the opportunity today. I'm, I'm glad to be here. And, and thank you for inviting me, Amanda. I'm, I'm glad that we're chatting as well. Well, Joan, I think for the podcast, we always start with the question, what was your childhood like? I know you grew up here in the Philippines, but could you share a bit about what you were like early on, a little snapshot of your childhood? <laughs> Chubby. <laughs> the the first word <laughs> I was a chubby child. <laughs> I know, right? The first word to to open up this podcast. I was a chubby kid. No, so like you said, I, I grew up in Manila, uh, Pasay, to be exact. Middle class family, you know. My mom was a travel agent. My dad worked in you know manufacturing, making pigments for plastics. I I went to Montessori yeah. for for elementary school. I was a couple of years younger than than other kids uh, in, in my grade, and you know, always felt a bit out of step. You know, people were talking about crushes, and I just wanted to play out in you know the playground and stuff. And I feel like you know that being slightly out of sync with everyone, like I don't know, helped me be a bit more in- independent, be more comfortable. I guess like being by myself and with my thoughts. I love to to read and draw. So like I think uh, living in my imagination was was a big kind of uh, a feature of my childhood. Yeah, that was kind of me growing up. Maybe the the biggest thing that that happened actually in 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 my childhood uh, is that I lost my mom pretty early. So she, I was eleven when she passed away from cancer, and you know I think this probably forced me to like grow up faster than than most kids my sister at the time was uh only three yeah oh you're the so eldest in the i'm the eldest oh. i'm the eldest and yeah like i think you know that that experience definitely i think i don't know i don't brought me into adulthood faster but i definitely learned like more how to like sacrifice and like how to make hard choices for you know like people that i loved like i ended up um, going to a high school uh, that was five minutes away uh, from my house in Pasay um, because, you know, my dad uh, wanted me to be nearby after after my mom died. So, yeah, like, I think a generally normal, happy childhood <laughs> until 11 and then kind of, you know, had to had to kind of quickly grow up and yeah, my, my life changed a lot, I think, after that. Well, thank you for sharing something so personal. I think one of the questions that I had when I was hearing about like your early life was when you said that you were a little sort of out of step with everyone else, did you feel like you were behind or you didn't fit in? Or was it more of like you get along with everyone pretty well, but you didn't feel that different? You just felt like you had some unique interests. Like, how did it feel like? Um, More, maybe more of the- I didn't fit in so much, you know, like, because uh, as I said, like, uh, being a couple of years younger, is like they're talking about different things from you. 
and you know the interests were different. So I think I connected to people uh, up to a certain level, but I feel like you know the deeper connections of my life probably happened closer to like college uh, that that era. So yeah, I think you know being by myself more, being more like thinking for myself and and reading and imagining things. Uh, that is what I remember from from my childhood. When you lost your mom, like how did that impact you when you were like eleven? I feel like you know that's really really young. Did you initially feel the loss at the time, or did it happen like later in life when you were a little bit older? No, I mean you know I think you feel it uh, right away, right? Obviously, your mom's a very big presence in your life. I was fortunate to have you know. Uh, very loving people around me, right? My dad, number one, but I have my childhood yaya. Shout out to yaya. I'm turning 37 this year. She's been my yaya for as many years. Oh, wow. So she's really like my second mom. Uh, my grandparents also. So everyone really, I think, uh, stepped in no, to to make sure that me and my sister uh, were okay. But yeah, I think when I lost her, it was a it was a period of a lot of, change a lot of transition because she passed away uh when i was in the sixth grade and montessori where i went to elementary school uh is only until uh grade seven so she passed away during the summer and then i came in to school and i had to start applying for high schools and all that stuff so in a way when when you're that age by young you know there are there were a lot of things like i had to i had to deal with in terms of getting to the next stage i think of of uh, my academic life and that kind of kept me busy everyday life you know i i had to be more involved in like day-to-day stuff i went to the grocery a lot more and like i actually like had the list and oh. i was like picking <laughs> things your out dad or with your oh, usually with my yeah. <laughs> so yun, it was it was an interesting time were you like the closest to your mom or were you closer to your dad back then? I would say closer to my dad. Um, my mom was always like the disciplinarian. Uh, and so like, you know, I think when she passed, but she and my dad were very loving, very close to each other. So I know that my dad was very kind of deeply affected by that loss. And so Again, it's weird, right? But, you know, at 11, I remember like thinking like, okay, I have to help make things easier for him. Like you have to be stronger for your dad because you know that he is probably the hardest hit. Exactly, exactly. Do you feel like when you were younger, you had a lot of emotions? Like were you more emotional than other kids? Or was it after this experience when you were like more empathetic or like emotional? Wow, what a question. I don't know. You know, I think, Maybe as a survival like mechanism, I kind of had to be less emotional, if anything. Parang, th- there's things that need to get done, you know, need to study for school, need to take care of my sister, do the groceries, whatever. So to a certain extent, kind of turned a few things off so that I could get on with, with things. So maybe I only really started to look back on, on that time um, and how I was affected by it, like, Later in my twenties now. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, would you feel? Do you feel like after your mom passed, you had like a new chapter in your life where nothing was the same as it used to be? Like you had a different school, you had like a different life, and then the whole family setup was different too. Because I guess more of your family members were involved. Was there anything that was constant though, apart from your yaya who's still there after 30, 37 years? <laughs> Um, no, I think that's a great way to put it, right? I think, you know, there there are a few points, few chapters in my life, and we'll get to them later, where, you know, it's like before this event and after that event. And I, I definitely think that, that losing my mom at that age was one of those kind of step changes, right? Like life looked very different after that. Constant. I still like to read. <laughs> I still <laughs> like to read. No, but I think I think family. So not just yeah, yeah. I think uh, you know, my my dad, my sister, we're a small family unit, but we have stayed, I think, very close, you know, af- after after that event. Yeah. And then when you transferred schools, what was the experience like at your new school near your house? <laughs> Do you like it more? No, no. but you didn't like it. 
You're not going to mention the school. <laughs> no, like it basically was a, a small Chinese school. We were 16 in the graduating batch, if you can oh, believe it. It was a very small uh, high school. And, you know, I think because, you know, it was like a smaller, a smaller school, I had wanted to go, you know, to maybe like Saint Score or Assumption, like where a lot of my classmates from elementary were going. Um, but my dad was like, please, please, can you go somewhere near? So that's where I went. And, you know, I think just because of, of where I was, it was hard for me to imagine what my life was going to be like. I, I, I didn't have a very clear picture, I would say, of what I was going to become after high school, which is, I guess, why college ended up being such a pivotal kind of moment for me, right? the next pivotal thing, because uh, that was when the world really started to open up and, and I started to figure out like who I wanted to be and, and what I wanted to do. Yeah. So high school maybe was more survival, I feel, you know, getting from point A, you know, that, that traumatic moment of my mom passing to like point B where things have settled down and you're starting to kind of figure out the next chapter. Yeah. So, so you high feel school. like those years were like your transition years and then after that, like life was different again? Yes. Yes. Again, a great way to put it. Yeah. Very much so. At the end of high school, did you have at least an idea of like what major you wanted to do in college or were you also still not so sure? And then if not, how did you figure out where to apply and what major to major in? <laughs> oh, listen, you know, <laughs> I don't know which story to, to tell you. So one story is um, I always wanted to be either because I like to draw and I like to write. So I thought I was going to be either an architect or a journalist. Uh, this is what I wanted to be. And I told my dad, like, oh, you know, like, dad, I, I want to be an architect. He's like, what? Architecture? You know, what are you going to do after? And then I said, oh, you know, what about uh, journalism? And he's like, oh, you know, this is the Philippines. You know, it's very dangerous to be a journalist. And I said, okay, what about law? Ali McBeal was very big at the time. He's like, yeah. law? All lawyers are, you know? And so I was like, huh, okay. So my dad basically gave me uh, a couple of options. <laughs> um, he said I could take a business or medicine. And what I did actually was... In my college applications, I applied to Ateneo to UP to La Salle. And for all of those schools, the first two choices were what my dad wanted. I'd put. Oh. So for UP, it was like bio, biochem, because he wanted me to be a doctor. Never mind, by the way, that I cannot stand blood, right? I don't know how that would have gone. I also cannot stand blood. <laughs> <laughs> I would have uh, been the world's worst doctor. And then <laughs> and then in Ateneo and, and La Salle, I did kind of, you know, business courses, right? Management, engineering, and, you know, so on. Uh, Liacom. But always, my third choice, my fourth choice, you could see what I really wanted with my third and fourth choice. So in UP, I think I, I did broadcast journalism. Yeah. In Ateneo, I did like ABCOM. And I think in the cell probably something similar, you know. And so, but as fate would have it, you know, like I I, I passed the different schools, and in particular, um, I got into Ateneo, uh, which was you know the the dream school at least where I really wanted to go. And Ateneo gave me a scholarship. I I, I got a, a merit scholarship to go to Ateneo, and you know that kind of just sealed sealed the deal for me, and and so that's where where I went. But as an ME student and not and not as a com com major. <laughs> so they accepted you for the ME degree, not the concert. Okay. <laughs> Were you happy at the time? Like you know, you I really was. I really was. I I think, you know, again, it 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 was really where I wanted to go. And you know, management engineering, I didn't know what to expect. And certainly, it was a lot more math than I was used to. Yeah. But um, I think. Overall, the training, but also the quality of people that I got to meet and become friends with 
was really super life changing. I would say. You know, when you're telling me about your experience with your dad, I remember the same thing happening with my dad. Except it happened over the course of like three years until I got to like the major that he wanted. But then I think this is much younger. I don't know why, but I think people were discussing like college at the time in like grade six or seven. And then I told my dad I wanted to do marketing because I thought it was cool because you could do all these campaigns and all and like design these things. And he said, "What are you going to do with a marketing degree?" I said, "Work for a business." And he said, "Then you might as well do business." So then the next year I said, "Okay, I want to do business." Then he said, "If you want to do business, why don't you learn a specialized skill?" And I think I said, "Like why not marketing?" He said, "Something even more difficult than marketing." <laughs> And then the third year, I think I came up with something else. I don't remember what it was. It might have been economics, but then he told me to do engineering instead. And we all know that I never ended up pursuing engineering, <laughs> nor it, nor was it in my intention to apply for engineering. I saw the math, and I was like, I think I won't graduate at this point <laughs> if I if I applied for engineering. <laughs> I I always tell people I was I I was generally an, a B plus A student in most subjects. Except for math, math I was consistently a C plus student. Math I would be either good at the test or really bad, so then my grade <laughs> would just average out to something that you know it won't help my cause if I applied for engineering. Like everybody else would probably get in. <laughs> so there, <laughs> I think it's a common experience. I guess I feel like if other Filipino Chinese people listen to this, they'll be like, "Yeah, that happened to me too." <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What are you gonna do with art? But no, I I uh, I, I managed to sneak in a, a minor in English literature. That's that's how I ended up kind of scratching that itch. <laughs> you enjoyed both. Yes. Well, when you were in college, like, what did you feel changed? And did you step into college telling yourself like, oh, this time I'm gonna be different? <laughs> you know, again, I I stepped into college excited, but I also yeah. d- didn't know what to expect. I was um, nervous. You know, again, I didn't come from. Uh, your your saviors, your ikas, your Ateneos, your povedas, right? Like people asked me where I went to school, and I would tell them, and they still didn't know, right? Like it didn't because help. you're only like seventeen people, yeah. right? So then yeah. when you go to college, you probably only have one to two people you know, and the entire university. Yeah, I think yes, I, <laughs> I was probably the only one from my school that went. No. Yeah, so really, it's like unheard of, you know. But it was like a breath of fresh air, you know. I. I, I I think it would be no exaggeration to say like I found my people. Like I found, you know, folks who were open-minded, who were smart, who weren't threatened by like whatever ideas or, or suggestions I had. Because I think coming into maybe a bit more context, coming into high school as an outsider, right? And I spoke English and, uh, you know, all these things. It was like, on principle, sometimes my classmates, I feel, would be like, she's different from us. Like, let's just make things harder for her, right? Mm-hmm. And so I I kind of went into college in a way, maybe like expecting the same, like, okay, I'm going to like... Like you have your guard up. Yeah, like I'm going to make a suggestion and I'm an outsider and they're going to be like, no, that's a terrible idea, right? But no, in fact, you know, one of my earliest like memories was... You know, I, I I made a suggestion during like it was the ME prep course, and I made a suggestion about something, and someone was like, the first response was like, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, we should we should totally try it, right? And I was like, whoa, like this has never happened before, <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of you know shaped, I guess, like what it was like for me that you know I really found like call it like fertile ground for my ideas, right? Like where I would like plant something and something would would grow as as a result so it was a very i would say creative period for me like i got to join a lot of orgs uh was part of a lot of like school projects i uh ran for and won uh in student council you know i started a magazine and Your journalism and built... <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> i found a way uh you know i built a team and all that so it it was really cool i think and I think the other major thing that connected or that that happened for me when I was in college was finding a pur- purpose. Should we call it purpose? I guess to take a step back, like as mentioned earlier, like I got into Ateneo uh, on on scholarship, and 
you know, I couldn't help but think like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm smart and I'm hardworking, but you know, a lot of people you realize are are smart and hardworking, right? But not not everyone has the same opportunities. The, the doors don't open for for everyone. Um, and I think that's ever since college, I think something that has stayed with me, right? Bothered me sometimes, right? Is that that disparity, right? Of opportunity. Why do doors open for some people and not others? And Ateneo obviously like has a lot of programs that expose you, right, to uh less fortunate communities, you know, uh, the folks in, in Payatas, or we would have we would call it the Ateneo labor trials where, you know, we would go work in a factory. Uh, I packed soap for, for two months, you know, in, in a soap factory. Like yeah. And or like that kind of basis. Two to three times a week, right? Like oh, for a couple okay. of hours, like I would go and like pack soap. I had a very life-changing project, accounting project of all things, managerial accounting. And we had to help the Department of Health with a project. Because they, the Department of Health wanted to move from allocating annual budget to hospitals based on the number of beds that they had. They wanted to move from the number of beds to the number of cases of a particular disease that that hospital was treating. So in order to do that, you needed to figure out what is the average cost of treating tuberculosis or pneumonia inside of a hospital. And multiply that by the number of cases that hospital has. And then that's what uh, determines how much uh, budget is given to that hospital. And so my my team and I, like for the accounting class, we kind of were assigned to a couple of hospitals, public hospitals, Kirino Memorial Medical Center and, and Rizal Medical Center. And we had to go there maybe like like that, like two or three times a week you know, for a couple of months, just getting information because you had to get like cost of medicine. You had to pour over like super dusty medical records. You had to talk to the admin team of of the hospitals. And between, you know, running from the pharmacy to radiology, right? Admin to wherever, like you pass by the corridors where people are sick, right? And yeah. the people are spilling out of wards and there's no room. Sometimes you would see two people on a hospital bed. Like carrying the same bed. Yeah, because there's no room, right? And, you know, I think all those experiences, like number one, kind of show you like how how fortunate you are. Um, but I think also gave like a a purpose to what I was studying. Right, especially that accounting project. Accounting, if you think about it, is so it can be very like dry, right? But because we were using it for something that might end up having greater purpose or, or utility, right? To improve uh, the quality of healthcare in the Philippines, like it brought home for me, I think, at an early age that, hey, you know, business or the skills that we apply in business, if we try to use them to help kind of solve uh, the problems that we see, it can be really kind of, you know, meaningful and, and cool. And so that was, I think, probably the biggest gift that I got in college. Having that experience, were you suddenly like considering uh, working in business more now than, I don't know, working in journalism or the arts? Was that like a pivotal moment in terms of your career choice? I think so. I think so. Because, yeah, like I said, what am I doing all this math for, right? What am I doing all this accounting for? But, you know, if you see kind of, you know, how those spreadsheets that you work on end up influencing decisions and decisions that can change, you know, thousands of lives, it starts to... Uh, become more meaningful. Similar to you, the other part I wanted to share, right? Similar to you, like I thought I was going to be in something more creative. So I actually also thought I would end up in marketing. But when an ME in management engineering, an internship is part of the curriculum. So for my junior year, I applied to a whole bunch of jobs 
And to, to be honest, and I've, I've said this, you know, somewhere else, is I, I completely bombed my PNG interview, right? Yeah. And ended up kind of by fortunate accident, you know, uh, interviewing uh, for, for Credit Suisse. And that interview, in contrast, went extremely well. And I ended up working there for, for a couple of months and following that up with an internship at, at another bank in UBS. And while initially I didn't think of myself as a finance person, as a numbers person, I think I realized like number one, especially in kind of day-to-day studying stocks, you know, structuring debt, whatever, you don't use differential equations, right? It's really a lot of it's not arithmetic. Like class. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a lot more practical. So it it wasn't as esoteric, you know, kind of math as I as as you know what I'd studied um, in the more theoretical classes. But I think the other thing I realized was finance is not just about the numbers; it's also about the narrative. Um, and that's something I tell my team a lot here at Kickstart: is that you know what we do as inv- investors is not just about the numbers, but it's also about the narrative. What is the story that we're telling about this company? What is the story that we're telling about how this market is going to develop? Because the numbers without context um, don't really mean anything. And so that's kind of how I found my way also into embracing the business and finance side more, is realizing that what I could bring right to the teams I was part of and just to business in general, I think was a sense of of that narrative and being able to help tell stories about uh, you know companies uh, that that we invest in or projects that that we want to start. So backtracking a little, so does it mean that PNG was your first choice among the places that you were interviewing with? And you know yeah, why? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know it was two thousand six, two thousand seven. And that was at the time where everyone wanted to go over, like like Credit Suisse or like a like a bank like that. PNG was still. I would I would say so, especially because I would say because PNG and Unilever they hire maybe in the dozens, right? If not hundreds, so it's a lot more visible. I think banks, particularly for you know functions like investment banking or equity research, they probably have at most one or two openings every year. So it's not, these are not like large volume uh, recruiters. And so I think there is also generally like a bit lower awareness of like what these jobs are like because there are fewer people who are in that field to talk about it. Okay, got it. So after you had that experience at like Credit Suisse, was the learning that it's not really about the numbers, but more about the narrative, something you discovered? Or was it something that they were upfront about when they were maybe working with you as a, when you were an intern? I think it's something that I learned or picked up while I was there. I, I don't think it was explicitly said, but you just see it from, you know, how your bosses like handle the meetings. And I think especially uh, when I was on the research side, that's where, you know, you make the model, but the model isn't going to sell itself, right? Like you actually have to like put the words around it. Like, okay, you know, we expect like rates to rise because of X, Y, Z, and therefore the price of the stock is like this. So that's really kind of where I figured out like, okay, the numbers tell a story and it's, you know, kind of our job to be able to communicate that story in order to drive decision-making. Got it. Then after you had the internship at Credit Suisse, you ended up at UBS. And then when you were about to graduate, what was your plan? Was it, okay, I'm going to find a bank to work at because I'm 100% sure now that I want to work at a bank? Yeah, pretty much. I graduated March of 2008. Mm -hmm. And then I decided to take a couple of months off to study for the CFA level one exams, which was in June. And then, you know, kind of was taking a break, shall we say. Uh, Wasn't wasn't a huge hurry to to find work. 
I did a second internship at Credit Suisse uh, in July of 2008. I think my boss called me up and she was like, what are you doing? And I said, oh, not much. She's like, sloth, come over here. And so I was there. And around that time, July, August, September, in, in my second internship with CS, that was when the global financial crisis happened. Yeah, so I wanted to ask about that because yeah. I think it was happening when you were graduating, so I wasn't sure like yes. your plans were going to be. <laughs> yes, it was kind of slowly unraveling, right? Unbeknownst to me. And I remember, you know, so in a way, like that second internship at, at Credit Suisse, I have this, this very like vivid memory. You know, it's like seven or eight in the morning. I come in. My my boss, Chicky, was a very early riser. So she'd be in the office by 7 a.m. So, you know, I got, got into work and she had Bloomberg on. And she had uh, the price, like, ticker of Citibank live. And she's just watching it. Like, you, like, you know, she was, like, staring at it. And, and I remember she said to me, watch as the world economy collapses. Huh. Um so it it was that time. It was that time where you know the stocks of these banks were going from eighty dollars, forty dollars to like two dollars, right? You didn't know what was going to survive and what wasn't going to survive. So obviously, I went from kind of having a very bright future in the finance industry to like, oh my god, sorry, we're on freeze hire. Oh my god, we're like letting go of like you know half yeah. the team, and so that really kind of. For a couple of months, I was in crisis, right? Like, I would say October, November, like that. November, December. 2008. 2008. Mm -hmm. Trying to figure out, hey, what do I do, right? Like, this was plan A. And suddenly, like, plan A is not looking so viable, kind of given the state of things. And, you know, friends and mentors said, well, you've always been interested in development since college, as mentioned. So why don't you tried to work in microfinance. That was the suggestion. And, you know, through a number of uh, fortuitous introductions, I got introduced to someone who ended up introducing me to who would eventually become my first boss, a guy named Wolfgang, a German guy based out of Zurich, Switzerland. And he was starting, just starting, a venture philanthropy fund and he was looking for his first hire from Southeast Asia. And I ended up joining them first as an intern in January of 2009, and then full-time in March of 2009. How did it feel to get the job, even like as an intern? You know, I had a couple of offers on the table. Uh, one was... A full-time role with a boutique investment bank. Another one was a full-time role with a microfinance ratings agency. And LGT had offered an internship, right? Like a two-month internship. Versus full-time jobs, right? Versus full-time jobs. <laughs> but the role at LGT sounded crazy. Like it didn't sound like a real job, you know? <laughs> like the, the, the job description was something like, the princely family of Liechtenstein. I mean, let's start there. It was the princely family of Liechtenstein. Um, uh, you know, has has set up this fund, and we would like to invest in early stage social enterprises around the world. We are looking for someone to come help us identify these kinds of companies, invest in them, and then support them to grow. Right. And I said. Is this a job? This sounds like so much. It's too much fun to be a job, right? Like how. <laughs> How, someone's gonna pay me to do this and yeah like I said you know what even if all it is is an internship I have to do it it was 10 times more exciting than, than any full-time offer and so so I rolled the dice and 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 went for it what in yourself like told you to take that risk apart from it being fun like um but was your dad interested in the role too Oh my goodness. Until now, I, I'm not sure if my family ever understood what, what I was doing in that job. <laughs> I think I think most people thought, you know, I worked for a foundation and that was it. Uh, a funny story is the, the initials of the of the company were LGT Venture Philanthropy, so LGTVP. 
So do they think you are a philanthropist? <laughs> uh, actually, somebody once thought I was selling LG televisions. Oh, okay. <laughs> my discount, ba? Anyway, so you were asking what about it, right? Made me feel I had to do it. Apart from it being so much fun, I was hire number five across the whole organization. It was four people in Zurich and then me. <laughs> And because it was such a small organization when they started, I got to speak to, you know, the the three kind of founders yeah. there. And I said, you know, they they all sound like my kind of people. These are people who worked in big consulting firms or, or, or in, in, in banks or have doctorate degrees. Like they could all be doing something else and perhaps something more lucrative, but you know, there's a strong desire from these people to like go make the world like a better place. Our, our mission was to improve the quality of life of less advantaged people in the developing world. And so I thought that that marriage of, you know, like very competent people trying to improve the quality of life of less advantaged people was too good of an opportunity to pass up. I'm curious, did they ever tell you why they picked you? Because, I mean, there are so many people in Southeast Asia. Not to say that you're, like, bad or anything. But I feel like it's such a rare opportunity. And if it presented to me, I would feel like I am so lucky. So I'm curious, like, did they ever tell you what they see in you? I think, I mean, I'll, I'll say more, right? Like, the, the job description asks for somebody with 5 to 10 years of work experience. So on that alone, right, I, a fresh graduate, had, like, no right to be applied for that job. Yeah. But. You know, a mentor of mine, Happy Tan, said, just try, right? Like, what have you got to lose? So, you know, I, I remember I wrote that email. I still have it. And, you know, I said, like, dear Mr. Wolfgang, I said, you know, this job, like, sounds amazing. You know, I can't believe that it is a job. Um, and, and I'd love to, to be considered. Um, but, and I really said this. I said, I don't want to shortchange you. But, you know, if you think I could do something, like, to help then you know i'd love to talk so i think first it was good vibes all around right i i think you know there was a real fit in terms of values but i think they also gave me a test uh, like they had basically like all these materials from five different companies and they said like hey can you like go write investment memos on on each of these companies and have you ever did you ever do one before no, <laughs> no. Your first um, time. Yeah. Uh, although, of course, I had some experience writing memos for like UBS. It's yeah. a little different, but at least, right, you have like some of the basics. But they, they, they said, can you write th- these up? And they put me on like some crazy schedule. But I didn't know at the time that it was crazy. I think some of it is that, you know, when you're young, you don't know what, is like what the workforce looks like. Yeah. What a yeah. Job right. Looks like. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. I didn't know what the standard was. So they they sent it to me and they're like, "Hey, write one investment memo a week, basically." And I was like, "Sure, I can do that." So yeah, like, I'm just happy to have a job. <laughs> exactly. Maybe. So like, so like in five weeks they had five investment memos and they were like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> like <laughs> apparently, like that's not normal. And so I think that. I was highly motivated Um, and I didn't, I guess the gift of youth, which, which, you know, you are, and you, you would be familiar with the gift of youth is that you don't necessarily know what the limits are. Right. I feel like you don't know all the gift of naivety. (laughs) Yeah. You don't know it. So just try and you can do it. Then great. I mean, you could have asked around, right? Like, is this normal? You could have been (laughs) suspecting, but then you probably didn't ask around and you're probably like, I'll just go with this. This is what they told me. I'm just happy to be considered. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Totally. That was exactly what happened. And I, I will say also that, again, that job, there was nothing like it, right? Even today, like, it's very, there almost, until now, I feel there isn't anything like, you know, what, what that job was or ended up being. So it was, yeah, like super, super exciting, super memorable, like kind of time in my life. How did you find like GeoFlow at that time for 
like, with, like yours. <laughs> with great difficulty. It was a lot of talking to foundations. So, and and the good thing is it was a regional role. So I had a bus route, you know, at like 21, 22. Like I would two to three times a year get on a plane and for three weeks kind of go around. I would maybe like do start in Philippines and then go to like Indonesia, sometimes Singapore, then Thailand, Vietnam, and then back. Or, you know, some 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 version of that route a couple of times a year at least to kind of rustle up business. We were, at that time again in 2009, it was this era where a lot of the development aid that had been channeled to Southeast Asia in the 90s and early 2000s was starting to dry up um, because uh, these Southeast Asian countries were exiting kind of lower income status and moving up to lower middle income status. They they were no longer considered kind of poor, right? Like yeah. they were kind of developing now. So you saw that the grants, the aid was slowly like dwindling. And so there was a need for these types of organizations, whether it was nonprofits or foundations, to think about how to become like more sustainable, self-sustaining. And so uh, we talked to a lot of organizations like that that were kind of in the midst of that transition and trying to figure out how to become businesses. And then we talked to like another strain, uh, like parallel to that, which were entrepreneurs who wanted to apply entrepreneurial kind of whatever principles or, or, or skills, but to build businesses that weren't just about profit, right? But also about planet and purpose, right? So my first investment uh, ever at LGT was uh, in a company called Rags to Riches, which is here in the Philippines. And they were exactly that kind of business. Uh, it was started by, it was a group of entrepreneurs or, or founders, but the co-founder and, and CEO uh, is a lady named uh, Reese uh, Fernandez Ruiz. And we actually went to Ateneo together. She was in management. We weren't, um, very close. We we recognize each other from school. Yeah, guess. yeah. I just knew her, but I didn't like you know know her, know her. And you know that was my first investment. And and Reese and I are still friends today. And and we look back at that time, and you know we ask ourselves like, what were we doing? <laughs> I think it was a, a huge kind of learning learning experience, learning curve for 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 both of us. She was just learning how to run an organization. And I, in turn, kind of was learning, you know, how to invest and, and actually support companies. So it was a, a amazing time. Joan, I'm super curious. So you said you were like 21, 22, and then traveling across like Southeast Asia, trying to get like deals done. Were you alone on these trips or like, was there a more senior member with you? I think most of the time, my managing partner, Wolfgang, uh, would fly down to Southeast Asia and then we would do that bus route together. But he left, I think that was the gift, is that he really gave me so much autonomy and so much like control to like organize things. So for the most part, like once or twice, he'd be like, oh, can we meet this person? Can we meet this person? But for the most part, it was my job to fill fill in like those three weeks across those four countries. Like it's I had like to solo meetings yourself and somebody yeah. else. Oh wow. So I had to like it was a lot of emailing people. It was a lot of Skype. So it wasn't Zoom, it wasn't Teams, it was a lot of Skype, connecting with people on the phone and then saying, like, okay, we'll be there like in a few months. Can we reach out to you then? Like that. So yeah, and we would do like five, six, sometimes seven meetings a day. My boss would be like, You're trying to kill me. But Really, yeah, really cool. I'm curious about like how that looked like when you would be like doing like solo meetings at like 21, 22. Was it easy to like take charge of the meetings, get the right people to speak with you? Or do you feel like like being young, like it was actually hard to do? Because I feel like it could have been one or the other, right? It could have been really easy or it could have been a challenge. I would say for the most part, not as hard as I thought, like, I think, again, because in Southeast Asia, I was for a while the only person. So if you wanted to talk to LGT in Southeast Asia, there was no other option. 
Um, and so and so folks, you know, generally would take the meeting maybe at most like out of curiosity, but that was okay. I think the hardest thing actually for me when I was younger was saying no. And, you know, when you're in, an investor, there's a lot of no in your life, right? Like, yeah. it's like 99% would, no, I guess. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes when you're having to deal with very senior people delivering that tough news, that's usually when they would get mad. I think <laughs> they would get more upset. They, they, I think they would be okay, like, during the, you know, intro meetings, due diligence and They would be meetings. nice and everything up until that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, because I think, you know, then it's an art, right? Also, like learning to say no with grace, but also being firm. So I think that's what I remember from from that time. Um, but you'd be surprised. Like, I, I, I think sometimes it's also the context, like, or the, the industry. Like, I feel like in non, non-profit social enterprise land, it's... People are, are are nicer, like a bit more accepting or inclusive. And so uh, generally, I always felt a, a lot of openness in talking to me. You know, I felt more what you're what you're saying, like, you know, are, are you old enough to be in this meeting? Do yeah. you have decision making rights? That, <laughs> that, that happened to me at, when I in my first year or two at Kickstart, actually. Oh, mm-hmm. what, why? What was your role called in your first year at Kickstart? I have like, had the same role since I joined Kickstart. Oh. So, so you know, I joined as, as, as vice president and, you know, I, I was 29 when I joined Kickstarter, relatively young. And I remember one meeting where, for the lack of a better word, it was a, a bunch of titos. It was the Backstreet Boys of, of uncles. And they arrived, there's like five of them, right? And average age is probably like 55, 60, something like that. And they've just been introduced by someone high up. And it just so happened that uh, my bosses, Minette and Dan, were unavailable to join the meeting. And so, you know, it's like five of them. We sit in the meeting room and they're like, is no one else coming? Oh, no. And I said, yeah, of course, right? They're like, is no one else coming? Like, there's five of us, you know? And I said, oh, unfortunately, you know, like so-and-so can't make it. But, you know, I'm here. <laughs> and they start the pitch. And maybe two minutes pass, like somebody is giving the pitch. And then the lead uncle the lead Tito <laughs> he he pauses the presentation he's like wait 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 I'm sorry Joanne I, I don't mean to be uh I know he didn't even finish sense I just don't mean to be difficult all right but um do you have decision making authority <laughs> I was like ah and of course like you know how do you say it in a nice way I'm like well you know yes there's three of us like who kind of evaluate the deals and so yes i am one of the three that make makes the decisions about it right but yeah definitely like you know a couple of times more more here i would say it's happened to me oh that was unexpected <laughs> i thought it was the other way around <laughs> yeah so Surprising. when that happens how do you respond like the same way like yes i do and then do you just carry on or or what? Yeah. Generally, like <laughs> they, they act the same way. Like they're just they just carry on as if it didn't happen. Yes, pretty much. Pretty <laughs> much. Yeah. So I I mean I I try not to like make it a a a, a, a bigger big thing, right? Yeah. It, I I feel like you know in interactions like that it probably says more about them about than them it than does you. about. Yeah. Do you feel like when it comes to investing, people are really like cautious about who they're pitching to do you feel like they always try to get to let's say the person with the decision making power earlier on we've definitely encountered founders like that and sometimes it's also the coaching right of a particular accelerator or like uh just whoever is 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 advising you right like so i know of one particular accelerator very famous who you know kind of tells their founders talk to a partner or it's a waste of your time and that is a bit like different when you're pitching to Kickstart because we're a corporate venture capital firm and nobody is a partner, mm-hmm. right? Like nobody has that title. And so, you know, I remember I was chatting with with someone and, you know, they were saying, oh, and, and, and in fact, I had reached out. I was like, hey, you know, would would like to meet with you. And they're like, oh, we're super busy. 
if we can't talk to a partner, like we just, you know, would rather push this meeting like to when we're less busy, like, you know, yeah. a few months from now, whatever. And I'm like, okay, great. Like all the best to you. Like yeah. that's okay. <laughs> yeah. So so I think it happens. Do you think that like kind of advice works for a certain geography? Or do you feel like Yes, like, I would say okay. maybe more more in a certain geography, right? Like I think and a certain organizational culture as well, right? I think again, I can't speak for the other VCs, although I imagine it it would be a bit similar. In Kickstart, we're I think very egalitarian. You know, we work very closely together as a team. Mm-hmm. So you know, if if an analyst or or associate brings something to me, I'll still look at it, right? Or 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 meet with them. Doesn't mean like. You know, it it the idea is worth less because it comes from someone who isn't a partner, right? So I think maybe that's the judgment or or the stereotype that that comes with that recommendation. That somehow, you know, an idea if it comes from a partner is worth more than an idea if it comes from an analyst or an associate. At least based on this conversation, somebody mm. who hears this will know that that isn't an issue with Kickstart. <laughs> yeah. They can just anyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, like to backtrack a bit, what brought you to Kickstart in the first place? When were you like looking to get into VC? Were you actually trying to avoid VC? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, as mentioned, you know, I, I worked at LGT for six years. It was it was amazing. I took a brief break. I I, I guess like to join the Philippine government in 2015 mm-hmm. is that right hold on yeah, time is a blur 2015 to 16 yes yes and through that i worked on a portfolio of things around small and medium enterprise development which included social enterprises which included yeah like basically tech startups as well and through that i got exposed to the nascent ecosystem right at the time it was primarily kickstart an idea space and i was trying to convince the secretary of trade at the time that tech and vc was going to become a bigger thing in southeast asia and that the philippines should develop more policies and programs to support that uh, domestically and follow the footsteps of singapore and malaysia and in that effort i ended up kind of connecting with people like minette uh, who's the president of kickstart to get their ideas about like how we could structure that kind of program so that was kind of my introduction to, you know, VC and, and tech startups in the region. After my stint in government, um, I had, you know, I was at the end of my 20s. I tell people sometimes I, have, I had exhausted my youthful idealism. And I said, okay, I'm going to go to school. So actually, my plan was, was I was going to like take a master's, whether it was an MBA or public uh, administration degree. but. Lo and behold, I left government end of 2015. And at the beginning of 2016, Minette reached out and she said, uh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, um, I'm you know, moving into my new place. She's like, cool. Can I visit? I was like, sure. I said, yes. Um, <laughs> and so like, I had like no furniture. Like, you know, it was like a table and like two monoblock chairs at that point. And she came over and she was like, hey. Um, you know, so we have just gotten this mandate from Globe. It's fifty million dollars, and we were hoping to grow the investment team. And uh, you know, we thought you might wanna wanna join. And I said, but Bennett, you know, I have experience working with early stage companies, but not in tech, right? And she's like, you know, that's okay. I think you can you can learn it. So it's like you have the fundamental skills to analyze companies and work with companies and then you just have to apply it to like this new vertical and so you know i said okay well why don't we give it a try I, i'm very fond of these uh two-month internships yeah. giving it a try for a few months so that's kind of what i did with kickstart I, I gave it a try for a couple of months my first company i ever did due diligence on was coins.ph oh yeah you sourced that too or no no i didn't source it minette had sourced it but like I, I I was brought to the due diligence meetings. I did the financial model. 
it's so funny because I was a consultant for Kickstart. I wasn't a full-time employee. Oh, so wait, your consultant job, was that like also like three months only? That like, was a three-month thing oh, before wow. I went full-time. Before I went full-time. So I remember Ron Hose, the CEO, even made me sign a separate NDA because he okay. was like, yeah, you're not yet covered by, by Kickstart. So, you know, so that was my intro to it. And, you know, I think after three months, you know, it was a similar feeling. Like, I think I really like uh, Minette and, and Dan and the rest of the Kickstarter team, Pia. I, yeah, like, it just felt right. Um, and so I, I joined and I tell people, you know, I, 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 I joined in, in 2016 to help out and kind of I've been helping out ever since. So seven and a half years later, here we are. <laughs> What do you makes you stay? Not just like in the VC role, but also at like Kickstart specifically. Yeah. Because I know people do move around like based on what I've seen on LinkedIn. So what makes you stay? You know, again, I think the people matter to me a lot. Like, you know, sharing the same values. I, I think there's a, a real commitment to doing things like thoroughly and, and properly um, and, and, and as well as we can. So So I think um, the commitment to the work, but I think also, I wouldn't say commitment, but, but I think a desire to also invest in things that have some like social relevance can help improve uh, or has a shot at, at, at improving things for people. You know, you, you can see that in, in at least some of the investments that we make, right? Whether it's in financial inclusion and in healthcare and education, you know, I, I, I look at things in mobility. So I think that desire also i think to make an impact with the investments that we make is something that you know keeps me here i've been part of the team when i joined we were only eight people and yeah. now we're about 20 um the investment team uh has grown right from three people me dan and minette to we're now seven people so you know, and, and still trying to hire a couple more, right? Like, so it, I think it's like also having been part of that journey and really feeling like I helped build the organization mm -hmm. is, I think, the fulfilling part. Do you remember like the first investment that felt meaningful to you and why? Yeah. I mean, uh, we've already talked about Rex Riches. We've already talked about coins. You know, I was saying that different investments are kind of memorable for different reasons. I think every investment teaches you a different lesson. If we're going kind of chronologically, and it's hard to choose. It's so hard to choose, Amanda. You know, uh, like hard to choose from the one percent of the ninety-nine you said no to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. Like, it's it's you know every deal you make, and by the way, every deal you make, whether or not it's successful, right? Like it stays with you, right? It's a choice. And, you know, arguably, you probably learn as much from the ones that don't do well as you do from the ones that do do well, right? Because the ones that don't do well are the ones that teach you what you, like, should look out for, like, next time, right? Or what your blind spots are. Right. Anyway, I think if I can choose a, a couple, <laughs> one, one from the LGT time, so... One investment at LGT that I'm very proud of is the investment we made in a company called Kenimer Foods International. So they are an agricultural company that works with smallholder farmers to plant cacao in between coconut trees. So a normal coconut farmer with one or two hectares of land will make only about $1,000 per year. But if you plant cacao in between, their income can go up to $4,000 oh, wow. sometimes. Yeah. So Kenimer supports these farmers with basically the tools and resources that they need to be able to become cacao farmers. Everything from the seedlings to the inputs, fertilizer techniques, and access to market. You know, they sell to large cacao companies like Mars Chocolate. So when we invested in them, they were working with maybe about 2,000 farmers in Davao. But today, they're working with about 30,000 farmers across uh, the Philippines and Indonesia. Oh, wow. So, you know, I think that was pretty cool. 
we invested, we were Series A investors, but I didn't know that that's what it was called at the time, right? But I think that's kind of where we came in. And, and I helped structure and, you know, lead that round. The first deal at Kickstart that I ever led was in 2017, an HRIS company called Sprout. So that was that was my first kind of deal in the Philippines that, you know, like I sourced it, built a relationship with Silla, Pat, and Alex, and, you know, structured the deal. Uh, and I've, you know, been part of or an observer on, on, on the board since since that time. And it's it's just been great, right, to see uh, them go through all the ups and downs and, and still kind of grow and, and become one of the, the leading SaaS companies in the Philippines. And I guess like to close, I'll ask you the last question, which I ask everyone on the podcast, and that's outside of work, what's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life at any given time in your life? It could be next month, next year, or even 20 years from now. You know, the answer that came to mind was I'd really like to start an impact fund for the Philippines. You know, those were like my roots in a way, and I do want to go back to them. You know, investing in innovation that improves quality of life, right? So whether that's education or healthcare, mobility, agriculture, or access to finance, you know, that's, I I hope that there's a time where I can bring together uh, these two sides, you know, the VC side, but also the impact side and get kind of enough support, right? Whether domestically or abroad to be able to, yeah, invest in in, in companies that, that will make a difference. Well, we'll company. be waiting for that. <laughs> thank and you so much. We can yeah. chat again. <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Joan. It was so fun speaking with you. I really enjoyed hearing about your life and sort of seeing it play out in my head. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks. It's been nice walking down memory lane with you. 